Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. So far this week, I've gotten more email and Facebook notes than I've ever gotten before about this podcast. I'm now corresponding with an active duty explosive ordnance tech, a former Marine Corps captain, two JAG lawyers, all about their thoughts on Bo Bergdahl's story. And we'll be talking about some of their points of view on a bonus episode we're recording next week. We'll also be talking about something else that has generated more email and tweets our way than anything else we've ever talked about, and that is the Netflix true crime series Making a Murderer. If you haven't watched it, I can't recommend it highly enough, so I'm letting you know that next week, while Serial is taking the week off, we will be producing an episode, so if you'd like to send us your thoughts on Serial Season 2 or on Netflix's Making a Murderer, you can do that via email at crimewriterson at gmail.com. If you want to record a voice memo on your phone and send that our way, we might even play it on the show. Thanks to those of you who've also supported this podcast as we've launched Season 2. Your iTunes reviews have helped keep us on the charts, so please keep them coming. We still don't have a sponsor, so we rely on your small PayPal donations at crimewriterson.com to pay our production costs. We've also got a link to Amazon.com on our website. You can bookmark it, use it for all your Amazon shopping, maybe spend that gift card you got for the holidays. A small percentage of your purchases goes to support the show, and it doesn't cost you anything at all. Speaking of our Amazon link, uh, Toby and Laura, did you know that Kevin does impressions? Yes. Uh, well, I saw his Adele a video, but I don't know if that was so much of an impression. <laughs> he, he occasionally breaks one out during one of the episodes. Yeah. Old-time radio voice guy. <laughs> one of my favorite impressions that Kevin does is his impression of uh, Jimmy Stewart, particularly Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. And I thought it would be, I don't know, fun to hear Kevin doing Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey, reading some of the items that our listeners have purchased using the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. Okay, cue the music. Mary! Mary, come here. Looks like that you, you ordered Saber Pepper Spray Police Strength with the quick-release key rig. That's, that's good in case Mr. Potter comes around. Oh, Uncle, Uncle Billy, why don't you take that $8,000 and, and buy Knitter's Pride Carbon Circular 32-inch knitting needles, U.S. size 5. Or you can get Nature's Miracle Intense Defense Clumping Litter <laughs> in a 40-pound bag. You can, have, you can have Ernie drive it over. By, by the way, wait, Mary, anybody find it weird you're naked in the bush and I'm not giving you this towel? <laughs> It is, it is called a pricker bush for a reason. <laughs> by, by the way, wait, who who designed the gymnasium to have a, a, sw- a swimming pool underneath it? It seems like a, a, a serious design flaw. <laughs> and, of course, every time someone uses the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com to make a purchase, Kevin gets his wings or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, Season 2, a podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today we'll be talking about Serial, Season 2, Episode 3. It's called Escaping. Joining me to do that is my true crime co-author, real-life husband and scheming partner, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca, and may the force be with you. Also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Good morning. And joining us as well is noir novelist and semi-professional Christmas cookie baker, Toby Ball. Hi, Toby. Good morning. I want to start this week by talking about the format of the episode. This episode was really built around Bo Bergdahl's account. There were no mixed narratives. There wasn't a whole lot of going back and forth. I think we heard a little bit from Sammy Yousafzai or Sarah talking about Sammy Yousafzai's point of view. What did you guys think about you know the structure of this episode? Toby, I'm going to start with you. 
Uh, this is actually, I, I thought, the least strong of either season of Serial. Really? Yeah. Huh. So, I, you know, it's an interesting story, but, I, you know, part of what makes Serial what it is is that at the end you just have all these things you want to talk about. And I, I just kind of felt like this was a story. It kind of gave you some insight into Bergdahl's travails in his, in his first year. But at, at the end, you know, I kind of think you're, you're falling into this pattern of at the end of each episode, you're supposed to feel a little bit differently about Bo. And, um, and so I guess it succeeded in that a little bit. But, yeah, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan of this one. What would have made it better for you, Toby? You know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know if, if having different perspectives or maybe just mixing this in as part of something else. It, it didn't do it for me. And, and who knows? Maybe it's because I was driving up from New Hampshire to Vermont and whatever. You but felt like you were in Taliban hands when you I were was. Dead. It felt like I was heading into the enemy territory. <laughs> Did you drink some Mountain Dew at, at the same time? <laughs> I had some in case I had to. Well, that was a really interesting detail, and I actually want to talk about that in a little bit. But, Laura, I would love to hear your reaction to this episode um, and the structure of it, that single narrative of Bo's time in captivity. Did it work for you? Well, I mean, I, I definitely felt like the pace moved along quicker uh, than the last episode for me. But what I, I really miss Sarah sort of being the protagonist here and going along with her. I mean, it would be fine if it was a single narrative, if she was sort of becoming a little bit more involved, like she did in season one. But for this one, I was kind of like, OK, OK. You know, it just seemed like a lot of the same over and over with horrible things happening to him. But I really would have liked her her to get a little bit more involved so that we would go along with her journey a little bit. What do you think, Kevin? I, I really like this episode. Yeah, I, I think, do too. I, you know, I, each episode tells you something you didn't previously know from between episode one and two and three. It has bounced back and forth at the end of sort of like how you feel about the situation and who you feel sympathy for. And the last one we're saying, man, these, you know, these search parties really put themselves not just at risk, but, you know, they went through this very grueling physical experience. And you feel like, hey, man, Bergdahl made a big mistake here. And it's you're right. This whole episode is just about him. It doesn't go anywhere else. I think that it needed the room to breathe. I don't think you could put in something else. So I did like it. I did think it was interesting. His perspective on um, his situation, uh, looking back at it, you, you know, was very telling. And, you, you know, I think what led credence was that uh, Sarah would come in and uh, she did provide some perspective, which included her takeaways from military intelligence officers and other people saying, this was the right thing. This was really helpful. I think it backed up sort of the credence to to his story. I do want to talk about some of those more substantive parallels. And I think, Toby, I want to start with you on this as well. I identified several parallels in this episode. We sort of had the parallel of Bo's account of that time versus the soldier's account of that time, which we heard last week. The parallel of, Laura, you mentioned to me in an email, the soldier recording the the voice message and then Bo recording those propaganda videos. Did you identify these parallels at all when you were listening to this episode? Was that just a trick my mind was playing on me? But I'm wondering, as somebody who you know crafts narratives in a fictional context, did you also realize that those parallels were being laid out or was it my imagination? Oh, no, sure. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, that's the structure that they're doing is that you're, you're kind of hopping from what, whose eyes you're seeing things through. So yeah, no, I think that was completely intentional. I didn't pick up the soldier and Bergdahl both doing those PSAs, basically. I, I hadn't thought about that, but just the basic way things are structured so far, at least, no, I, I think that's right on. What do you think, Laura? You were the one who sort of pointed out the voice message, which, you know, I didn't hear initially, but then after you mentioned it, I was listening again this morning, and I was like, oh, yeah, there's two guys saying something they don't want to say from a script. Was that your reaction as well? Yeah, that was sort of, that was what I was getting at, was I was thinking, okay, so you have this guy, this soldier, and he's basically being propped up uh, because of his accent, which is going to seem more identifiable, and he was really reluctant, but he was doing it because this is what he was being asked to do. And then I'm thinking, you know, and here you have Bo Bergdahl essentially in the same situation later in the episode being asked to read these scripts with his sunglasses on so that you can't see him reading. And 
trying to do this to, I guess, self-preservation, uh, but really not wanting to do this video. So I was thinking of, you know, on both sides, you have this sort of reluctance going on at the same time. But Sarah and the Taliban agree that sunglasses make you look cool. Yes. yes. You know, well, agreed. 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 They do. That's, that's actually an interesting point. You know, Sarah does sort of inject small little humorous asides, even when telling this very harrowing story. You know, she calls his escapes like the two shitty bookends at the end of a horrible year, which, you know, really sticks out of the texture because, you know, just swearing as part of the um, voiceover is just not something that, you know, you typically hear, especially from a former public radio reporter. Those little asides, Kevin, do you like those? Do you feel like they stick out in a distracting way? What do you think? No, I mean, I, I think, okay, I'm going to get really deep here. Shakespeare, Macbeth, okay? Horrible scenes, like from the murder, and then you cut right back to uh, the drunk trying to answer the door. I remember my high school English teacher saying what Shakespeare did is he lifted up the tension, and then he brought the comic relief, brings it down, so you can bring it back up. And so I think this is part of what she's doing is if it's all high tension, there are no highs and lows. There's no light and dark. You know, from a musical standpoint, it's like you have to be able to find that final note. If everything is in a, in a major key, the minor key helps bring the major key back to the resting point. I think that's kind of what she's doing. She doesn't go on a long, funny tangent. Bo sometimes does that. But I think the way that the clips were selected and structured, that they do have a, an up and down flow to them. I feel like what you're yeah. describing right now is the difference between True Detective Season 1 and True Detective Season 2. That's what you just reminded me of. Yeah, I, I would actually rather see Vince Vaughn tied to a bed for several months than Bo <laughs> Bergdahl. <laughs> I, I just wanted to add in um, on that one of the lines that really stood out to me at the end when he had had his second escape and um, she just inserted, yeah, a tall, skinny, naked white guy coming at you. Something to pause at, perhaps. And <laughs> that was my favorite line of the whole episode. <laughs> It was, Not if it was Lincoln Park, apparently, you know, white guy just walking out of the woods. What was his name, Mr. S? Uh, I don't think he was. Was he white, Mr. S? But, I don't think we know. I don't think we know. I don't but he, he was would just totally naked. I thought he was just partially naked. Yeah. And you have to tell the cop that uh, he jumped out in front of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's let's put our Toby, if you can, I'd like you to put your feelings about you know the quality of the episode, the interestingness of the episode aside. Let's talk about some of the content and what we heard and what we feel about that. Last week we heard about the harsh conditions suffered by the search team. This week we heard about the harsh conditions suffered by Bo. One of the things that I think sticks out is the manner in which he's able to recount these conditions after, I think she said that Mark Bull interviewed him just after he was back for just a few weeks. And he has this very... Uh, I want to say detached way of talking about it, almost as if he's telling a story that happened to somebody else. At least that's how it sort of sounded to me. He does not sound like somebody who has been, as Mark Bull described, would be a potato in this situation. Toby, do you think that the way that Bo is able to recount these details, remember so much of them, the detachment with which he does it, does that tell us something about his character or his personality? I guess I have a, a few thoughts about this, one of which is, you know, there's there's no way of, of knowing how accurate what he's saying is. So when he talks about being strapped down to a bed for three months, it, it may be three months, it may be less, it may be more. So, you know, some of the details, it's, it's kind of hard to know. But the, the sort of detachment, I remember like one of the great, I don't know if people watch Frontline on PBS, but there was one about the Black Hawk Down incident. And you had these guys who were uh, SEALs. And they're talking about the incident and they, they seem very laid back. They seem kind of detached from what's going on as they're talking about these like really horrific, highly stressful things. And I kind of thought of it as sort of a military demeanor when they're talking about things like that. And that's I was kind of thinking about that when Bo was talking about stuff where he's talking about these really horrific things, but in a way that. You know, I might talk about having like watched a game on TV or something like that. So I guess those are those are sort of my two impressions. Laura, what was your impression of Bo's demeanor as he was recounting these events? It really um, didn't fit for me. I was thinking, gosh, this guy doesn't sound like somebody 
that was held by the Taliban for five years in these horrific conditions. So I have a little confession. I hadn't actually done much reading about this case prior to Serial. I wanted to kind of experience Serial as it was going along. Uh, so this sort of prompted me to go out and see what I could read about Bo Bergdahl and kind of his background. And there was some really interesting information about him being homeschooled and growing up in this very remote area and having some sort of eccentric interests growing up. Uh, so I, I think he's just kind of an odd guy. Um, but it, it did make me question a little bit if all of this really happened, like Toby said, the way he was describing, because I can't imagine somebody not being more damaged from that experience. What do you think of his affect, Kevin? Well, I think that obviously shows he's suffering from PTSD. As a defense mechanism, the way you speak about that. And I think Toby has, is right about sort of the military demeanor, because you, you do see that, you know, in certain branches. I, I don't know if anyone read Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. The book was very different from the movie. And the, he talked a lot about Chuck Yeager, who was, you know, that the test pilot. And, and the um, the lasting legacy of Chuck Yeager, the, the test pilot, is that he had a very dry way of speaking. You know, right now, if you're on an airplane and something is going on, when the pilot just comes on and says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, both wings have fallen off the plane, and uh, so we're going to have a bumpy landing here. Th- that's all actually Chuck Yeager. You know, so th- there are, in certain ways, like in sports, in baseball, you make a great play, you just look down and you scuff the uh, the, the turf with your, your cleat. In football, you do the same thing, you do a backflip. Right. You know, so th- you know, th- that does go, and I think that Toby's right, there is a certain military demeanor that like you have. Like a trope. Like yeah, a- you act the way, you know, there's a, a culture. But I do think he has PTSD. I think there's one of the, I mean, how could, how could he not? Five years in captivity, a lot of that being neglected. Right. But we're also talking about a guy, you talk about the military trope and the way, we're also talking about a guy that many people say is very unlike other people who have joined the military and didn't behave like them when he got there and, in fact, walked off. Well, he's insubordinate, obviously. Right. Which makes his first year in captivity all the more fascinating because I, he's not Jason Bourne, but he does things that are active and not passive. Toby and Laura, I don't have to ask Kevin this question. Have either of you ever been a long distance runner? Oh, or shut had, the hell up, Rebecca. <laughs> or had, oh, I, I know that I know that you and I have not. I think it's fair to say. Well, you've been a, anyway, go I, ahead. I have run, but I've never run more than, you know, 5K in my life. It's have a you, long way to the, the refrigerator in my house. Have either one of you ever done any sort of long distance, you know, sports, any sort of endurance activities like that? Uh, uh <laughs> no, I mean I played I played, you know, soccer, basketball. All right, it doesn't care. I just sort of feel and I don't know if you guys felt this way. I would last 30 seconds with somebody beating me with a rubber hose. It would it would be the idea that I would be able to, you know, endure the pain, remember it, recount it, talk about it, be debriefed about it 5 years later and describe these incidents. I almost wonder if there's some sort of connection between the personality of somebody who can run 20 miles and the personality of somebody who can endure something like torture, you know, being beaten with a rubber hose, the things that we heard about for long periods of time and just keep ahead about them. I mean, am I nuts to to think that? Is that something that any of you thought about when you were listening to this? Well, what else would you do? I mean, you're captured. They're beating with the rubber hose. There's not a point at which you say, you know, time out. That's yeah. true. That's true. You're, just, you're stuck. In many ways, it's like childbirth, right? <laughs> uh, well, thankfully, exactly. yeah. Thankfully, no, you no, no choice. But, um, Rebecca, I have. I, I didn't even make it to the 5K. I tried that Couch to 5K app, and I, um, I, you know, I think I made it six weeks in, and I'm like, you know what? I just can't do this anymore. I made um, it to the kitchen. Couch to the yes. kitchen. Yes, that's about yes. that's about where I am too. Uh, a friend of mine from college who who went into the army right after school, ran into him like three or four years later. We were talking about it. I said, I said, so you must be in amazing shape. And he said, it's not so much that I'm in amazing shape. It's that I realize that my body can take a lot more than I thought it could. And I think that's, that's part of the military, you right. know, is that, is that you realize that what you thought were your limitations, those aren't really your limitations. That's just the, the mental block beyond which you have to get in order to really fulfill those things. Kevin, were you surprised to hear about what Bergdahl endured in his captivity? I mean, were any details to you just like beyond what you thought they would be? Or Yeah, I mean, very much in the same way how I, I was surprised about the details of the patrols looking for him. Yeah, you know, I, I think Sarah said that the, the military debriefers classified his five years in captivity as torture 
and then abuse and then neglect. And so, you know, I think it was pretty scary. It sounded, you know, if, if you if you are to believe his uh, version of the events, which seemed to, you know, the major points the the Taliban interviewees confirm and the military debriefers believe. <sighs> You know, to again to to live in your own feces and to smell so bad. Obviously, if you're strapped down to a bed, you're going to get bed sores. Yeah, it really uh, brought home to me again. If you say five years in captivity, you think five years sitting in a jail cell. You know, this wasn't that. Five years in captivity and three of them with diarrhea is what we heard about. Yeah, too. I mean, yeah, yeah. Those those kinds of very dehumanizing details for me are what stuck out. I think that I, to some extent. I don't want to say expected, like the beating and torture stuff, except that we have heard that before. You don't think about the very human aspect of it, the wearing the same clothes, you know, being able to shower, you know, once every few weeks, the having food withheld, the gastrointestinal issues. What about you, Toby? What did you think of these scenes that uh, we heard about, whether or not you sort of feel like it was a strong episode or not, whether or not you believe, but what, what did you think of the details that we heard? Uh, yeah, it didn't sound good. There's so much recent stuff that's come out about people who are put in solitary confinement and how very quickly that affects their mental health. And while what he was in wasn't exactly solitary confinement, there was an issue about like basic communication with the vast majority of the people he came into contact with. And he just didn't come into contact with people for very long. So I think you know, the conditions just are, are sort of physically unbelievably cruel. Um, I think the mental part of it, which again, you know, we talked about is affect, but I think those kinds of situations really play on even like your sense of yourself as a being, as an entity. So yeah, I mean, it's, it, it sounds about as bad as it could get, quite honestly. I want to talk a little bit about his escape attempts. Uh, Laura, we heard about two attempts. We heard about the, the smaller attempt at the beginning, where he ended up on the roof. And there was that very, I think, moving detail about the old woman in the house trying to wipe the mud off of his face and then him being you know, pulled back. And, and then we heard about that longer, more epic attempt a year later. What did you think of Bergdahl's, we're obviously working off his description, but what did you think of these escape attempts? What were your impressions when you heard about these escapes? As I was listening to it, it really, it almost sounded like a movie to me, um, especially the one where he's in the mountain fortress and he is counting the hours at night um, so he can plan the exact moment when it's safe to go and how he'd made his chain and sheet, you know, rope to escape out the window and then turned it into a bag. It was just, I was listening to it thinking, wow. I mean, it really sounded like something that was scripted for, um, the, you know, the TV. But the, then the part where he falls off the cliff I just can't even believe he didn't die from that. And in the beginning, I was thinking, God, that that doesn't even sound, can I really believe that this cliff fall happened? And then I started to think, again, what we were talking about when, you know, he's in captivity and how, like Toby was saying, your body is capable of more than you think. And I was thinking, you know, maybe it was the fact that he was tortured and treated so badly and had, you know, survived so much that enabled him at that point to go on and, you know, crawl around on his knees and elbows. And, you know, I was curious about this hole that he was digging under the tree that I I was thinking, how in the world did he dig a hole big enough for himself to get in? So it did. It sounded like something out of a movie to me. What did you think of this part of the narrative, Kevin, the the escape attempts? Uh, Well, the first was opportunistic. I mean, he ran barefoot, you know, through a village. So, you know, that's not so fantastic a way to try to escape long term. The second one, of course, was far more premeditated. And it's sort of like the caper movie where you're fascinated by the steps taken. You know, maybe a bad example, but like Ocean's Eleven, where, you know, you're you're, you're watching how all the pieces fit into play. You know, what is he going to do with a nail? What is he going to do with a PVC pipe? And, you know, he had, it, it sounds like, close to a year to think about how all these things could come into play. I was surprised that, you know, where he decided to make the break was, you know, the prison, like certainly the more, the most fortified, most isolated place that he was held. But then again, maybe it just, it gave him the most amount of cover. So yeah, I was really fascinated. Again, something else that we hadn't heard. And I think that the listener comes away with the idea is you can't say he didn't try. And again, and it wasn't just like, oh, here's my chance, I'm gonna run. He took great risk, 
to try to get out because he felt, you know, that's what he needed to. And after that attempt, I think it sort of broke his spirit as far as trying to get out again. Sarah says, you know, it's fair to say that Bo was trying to come home as she's setting up this episode, detailing these escapes. Do you think, and I'd like each of you to respond to this, and I'll start with you, Kevin, that these escape attempts are proof that he was not in any way a sympathizer with the Taliban, as people have accused him of being? I I think it makes a good case for that. If some of the narrative was, while he was in captivity, he had a puppy and he went hunting, and uh, certainly a lot of the propaganda photographs, you know, sort of show him smiling, you you get the, the perspective that he was doing that as a survival mechanism, you know, that some of the the stuff is, what do they call it, uh, random stray static? Vo- stray, stray voltage. voltage. Great, great term. Yeah, misinformation or just misunderstanding. Yeah, so that's what I think. Toby, what do you think of these escapes? Do they do they say something about, you know, his alliances or what what do you think that they mean? I actually, I, I don't think so at all. You know, I think it's 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 very plausible that he was a Taliban sympathizer when he left his base. But then however much you sympathize with somebody when they, you know, start beating you with a rubber hose and they chain you to a bed and things like that, you know, that's going to probably eat into your, you know, devotion to them. And of course, you're going to try to escape. So I, I didn't really see that at the time when he makes the escape. Yeah, no, he's, he's definitely trying to make the escape. But as to sort of his mindset when he left camp the first time, I don't think you can back it up that far. I, I think what happened in between when he left and when he tried to make the escape attempts, when he realized what he got himself into. I'm not saying that he was a Taliban sympathizer. I'm just saying I don't think this is evidence that he wasn't at least at the beginning. Laura, do you think his escape attempts are evidence of anything aside from his wanting to get out of that horrific situation? No, I I think he just wanted to get out. I can't imagine watching those execution videos with the rooster crowing in the background. I think that was one of the scenes that really stood out to me. So I think he just wanted to get out. The thing that I hear that I think is really interesting, and I think we hear it much more in his first escape attempt when he's sort of running toward houses and it's almost like... He thinks in the same way I think I would if I had, you know, just been with the Taliban for a short period of time that maybe if somebody sees me, they will take pity on me and help me, you know, and he's not really taking into account the attitude of an entire group of people who, just like we in the U.S., have a very singular point of view at that point in time about the Taliban, have a very singular point of view about us and, you know, seeing an American naked running around wouldn't necessarily elicit sympathetic reactions, but clearly I think he has hope that it will initially. And then we hear in a second escape that he's avoiding people, that he's, you know, trying to, he falls off a cliff because he's trying to avoid running into any people. It sort of shows how he evolves. Okay, so I want to talk about the interrogations and what we heard about the Taliban asking Bo while he was in captivity. Toby, we heard that there was, you know, some strategies that Bo developed, sort of understanding that if you, you know, hesitate, they think they're onto something. And he sort of talked about the guy who knew a lot about the military, so knew not to ask him. But then we heard about the Taliban asking these kind of absurd, very sort of poking questions, like, isn't it true that your president is gay and that all women in America are prostitutes? What did you think of these questions? What did you think of Bo's recounting them? Well, I think it goes back to what you were just talking about, that they had a lot of misconceptions about Americans and America is similar to the way that we have misconceptions about what's going on in Afghanistan. So that was part of it. Part of it, my guess is, is that they were just trying to mess with them. You know, it was it was interesting because it's one of those things that seemed not exactly contradictory, but a little bit at odds to each other when he's saying that basically they knew everything that I could tell them that they wanted to know. And then everything else was just, it seems like just kind of interest. And I think she makes the point that the interrogation was really almost beside the point. The, the main thing was that they just physically had this American and that was what was important about it and that the rest of the interrogation wasn't really bringing up anything operational that they didn't already know. Yeah, I agree with Toby that – and he's echoing what Sarah said is it seems that they know as little about us as we know about them. 
based on the questioning. I was also kind of drawn to, if you think about the way he was treated individually by his guards, um, that they were bored, they saw him as a plaything. There are parallels to the allegations at Abu Ghraib, where you had American soldiers who were sort of left to their own devices on how to treat enemy uh, combat, I forget, detainees, I forget what our Enemy term combatants. Is. Enemy yeah. combatants, yeah. they don't call them prisoners of war. It's an interesting study. It seems to be one of the cultural things that we have in common is that young men, or sometimes young uh, women, will take their frustrations out on a weaker person. You see that in the animal kingdom, you see that in human behavior too. We also know that in Abu Ghraib, though, that those young soldiers were very much influenced by the behavior of their superiors and what it was they were told to do. And we saw an interesting documentary about that, The Ghosts of Abu Ghraib, which I would actually really recommend. I think it will be very interesting viewing again, listening to Serial Season 2. And, you know, you mentioned something about, you know, the youth. And, Laura, I don't know if you heard this too, but we heard about, you know, these humanizing details that Bo provided of his captors. You know, they love Mountain Dew. They think chin beards are hilarious. So, you know, they <laughs> shave him in funny ways and they're bored. And, and the one thing that she says that I think is the real point is that they were stuck in a stressful situation they didn't choose. They were following orders. They knew that their friends were out, she says, you know, dancing and having a good time. And here they were. And, you know, I felt there was very much a parallel there between the young men that we have sitting at that, what was it called, the, the pit of hell, you know, in mm-hmm. that place of that, that isn't of their choosing. And these young men, Laura, did, did that, did you hear that as well? Did, did you think about that at all listening to this episode? I didn't think about that parallel so much. I just thought about this sort of psychological, I wouldn't say torture, but psychological toying with him that they were doing. You know, everything that was going on as he was there designed to heighten his sense of what could happen to him and how the women and the boys hated him and the other people, sort of these outside characters that would occasionally see him and the boy who hit him over the head when he was humming. So they they seem to almost view him like an animal and at sometimes, you know, a bit of fascination for them with these questions that they were asking. They uh, they reminded me more of the the soldiers who were searching for Bo, who considered themselves as being put in these highly dangerous, highly stressful situations because of him. And they talked about, you know, if they found him, they might have killed him. And I think for these these kids who are guarding him, it's the same thing. It's like if it weren't for this guy, I'd be, you know, downtown dancing with my buddies and wouldn't have this really boring and really stressful existence. So it's easy to kind of point to him as being the the source of your problems and get back at him for it. Kevin, what do you think? You know, I'm struck by where we have gone with uh, POWs over the past century. You know, you think if you go back to World War II and the the German Stalags, you know, there was order there that if you're one of the Allied soldiers and you were taken, you maintain wearing your uniform. You you had to report to your American officers. There was a structure. There was they were following the Geneva Conventions. When you get to the Vietnam War and the Hanoi Hilton. The conditions are much worse. The prisoners there are are beaten. They're used for propaganda. And then you finally get to Bo Bergdahl, and he's by himself. This one is interesting. Unlike all those other POWs, he's primarily by himself. He has no comrades with which to socialize, with which to conspire. And I, I think that there are so there are so few of his captors who could speak English, unlike the Germans, unlike presumably the Viet Cong, it limits who comes in and who is like interrogating him, who has any sort of usefulness of his captivity from the enemy's point of view. It just degrades. And I think that's what happens when you engage in a a guerrilla war. You know, it isn't even the Taliban that are holding him. They've outsourced this to this this other family that is uh, that are sympathizers. Right. And I I think that I have a theory about the questions that he was being asked, you know, those questions that just sounded sounded sort of of silly. I almost feel like he was being asked questions that our enemy combatants may have been asked when they were taken prisoner because... The questions that, you know, they sort of struck me as very, you know, is it true that all your women are prostitutes? It was all about sort of, you know, sex, being gay, sort of these things that are very antithetical to that hard line, you know, that very, very hard line Muslim thinking that we hear all the time. The Taliban are, you know, suppressing women and suppressing people's sexuality. And it almost seems like those are questions designed to rile up Taliban combatants. 
I mean, they wouldn't have any effect. If someone asked me that question, I don't care how patriotic I am. It wouldn't. But I, I think I think the soldiers on both sides are asking questions that further their own goals. The, the, the Taliban, Islamic ex- extremists, their goal is to spread Islam. So these are questions designed at, at, at reinforcing their beliefs that, that Western values are bad. In Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo, presumably people who have been detainees for years and years now are being asked questions about eminent terrorist attacks. And everybody from one of the guys was was a driver for uh, uh, some high al-Qaeda official. You know, whether you're a, a general or a foot soldier at Guantanamo, they want to know what you know about the next attack. Right. I, I mean, we know that very few knew anything. Right. And we also know that torture didn't work. It just provided we, we, bad Right. Exactly. It works on, <laughs> yeah, both ways. Um, so I want to talk about that military code of conduct because you were talking about sort of the history of you know prisoners of war through the 20th century Toby we heard Sarah describe that military code of conduct that thing that I think we've all heard watching movies like you say your name rank serial number you don't participate in propaganda you try to escape at every opportunity but then she talks about the way military officials what they actually expect you know that there is an upside to prisoners making videos um you know for example yet his fellow soldiers seem very clear sarah says that he absolutely broke that code of military conduct what do you think about the code sort of what's expected in the code of soldiers toby and then what do you think of this idea that there's a second expectation that officials have really on the ground that that is more in line with the reality there yeah well i think you tell it's like other things where you tell somebody that this is the way you're supposed to act, but then as the person in charge or superior or whatever, you realize that they're not always going to toe that line exactly. And particularly in a case where they're going to be tortured or killed over something like making a video, you know, I guess it wasn't too surprising. I, the only thing that was kind of new to me was that that the army was was that sort of. I don't know, forgiving, but at least realistic about the way that you act in order to sort of preserve yourself so that you couldn't expect them to like adhere to it in sort of a doctrinaire way. But didn't those rules of conduct sound like rules of conduct that would be in place like in better times, you know, when there was sort of a more structure. Like World War II. Yeah, it's just sort yeah. of more structure around being a POW and the expectations of, you know, being treated a certain way. Don't those codes of conduct sound like more in line with that than with... What we have today. But what do you what do you expect them to say now? Right. It's like, well, don't even worry about it. If if the Taliban get you, just say whatever. I mean, I think you you try and lay out what you'd like them to do. You know, with the understanding that if they're being tortured and they're like, can you just go on and say, you know, talk badly about America? That of course you're going to do that if it's going to relieve the pain or keep you alive. I mean, that's just that's you can't expect people not to do that. Yeah, I think like again back in World War II, why are you, why is it name, rank, and serial number? Because yeah, first of all, you're still going to get a bed and three meals a day and mail from home. But one of the reasons why you don't talk, you know, imagine you, you sit down with a German officer and German officer says, you know, uh, how are you? Are you hungry? And you say yes or no. Well, you've just told them how long ago it has been since you've been with your unit, how close the unit is there. They ask sort of trick questions, uh, questions that seem innocuous but elicit important information for the enemy. So name, rank, and serial number, very important. But this is a, such a different kind of war. This different is a kind of enemy. War. Yeah. I mean, very uh, firefights are, are very rare, and it's mostly improvised explosive devices with, you know, with exception. But think about this, you know, there are more servicemen in the Marine Corps band then there have been POWs, you know. So as much as we know that being a serviceman in this country, serving in the war, is still a tiny fraction of our population, and even in a tinier fraction has that experience of being a POW in this kind of war. So I think it was important because, right, we all know name, rank, and serial number. We all know that you're not supposed to give aid to the enemy by appearing in propaganda videos. I think Sarah's digging deeper and not asking what does the foot soldier think about this, but actually, you know, what does the military hierarchy actually understand about this? They don't hold him responsible for that. Like she says, the army doesn't expect you to, to die for not shooting a video. Laura, I have a follow-up question for you. We heard Bo Bergdahl in an early video say that he 
was taken prisoner because he fell behind his unit on patrol. We heard that military people said that this is proof of his, you know, not being truthful because there's no way that that was that was obviously not true. But then we hear Bo say that he told that story because he would know that the military would know it wasn't true and it would be some sort of communication to them that he was trying to make. Did you find him believable when he talked about his strategy during these propaganda videos? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things you have to think about here, when they talked about he was given the most basic type of training that there was for a situation like this. Um, So he was really, I think she said, puzzling it out as he went along. He's only been in the military for what? I mean, a very short time. So I think he's doing what he thinks he needs to do to try to communicate um, with the military as to what's going on so that they realize he's not doing this of his own free will. I think the video that really, I I watched the videos on the serial website, the last one where he goes on and on and on about his friends and his family and does the push-ups. And that was really interesting to me to see how they, you know, listening to this and listening to these horrible conditions that they have him in where he's basically living in his own filth, the way that they've cleaned him up and propped him up before the camera. You know, I really found myself looking for clues when I was looking at that video. And he did an amazing job of appearing to be in good condition, I think. Did anybody else feel that way when they looked? Did you yeah, watch that video? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're talking about on the the serial podcast page, the last video at the bottom. Yes. Yeah. Okay. This is the one they say is maybe a month or two before his final escape. We're putting this up on our website at this point. If you go to the four minute mark, right after he talks about his family, he starts talking extemporaneously about his desire to go home. Now, we hear two very brief clips of that in the opening montage of, of Serial every week where he says, bring me home. But, but this goes on, and the normally taciturn Bo Bergdahl Mm-hmm. You can see him fighting back tears. You see the way he holds his hands and oh, is rubbing yeah. his fingers. That's where I was looking for clues with how he was holding his hands, you know, too. Yeah. He really he wa- he doesn't want to be there. He wants yeah. to go home. He's speaking from his heart. When he says, you know, release me, it- it's hard to tell whether he is speaking into the camera asking the U.S. to do this or if he's asking his captors to do this. And, and it, it may be both. But I think that is one piece of tape that I'm, I'm surprised that they didn't use. It, it really speaks volumes. Or if he's asking, as I thought when I watched it, if he's saying he's trying to send a signal to the Americans like I would rather be dead than be in this situation. So, Toby, I'd love to know, did you believe Bo when he talked about trying to send the military a signal in that video? Did, did you believe his version of making these videos and what he was trying to do while he was making them? You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to evaluate that. In, in some ways, just because it was so, what he said was so off that you, it's like, why would you say that? And so maybe it was trying to send a signal. On the other hand, I, I can't put myself in his head at that kind of time when you're, you know, scared and you've been deprived and things like that. Do you have the wherewithal to think clearly about what's going to be sending a signal to the people who are on the receiving end of your videos. I, I don't have a strong feeling either way other than I guess I would, I'd give him the benefit of the doubt on that one. I don't, I don't really see what he has to gain or lose with, with that kind of thing. But, but if we could spend all these previous podcasts talking about how Jay or somebody like that could give a confession under duress, this is the same thing on steroids. Yeah. I mean, you're far from home. You, you know, you are not going anywhere. There are people who will kill you. And now they say, make a video. You've got to be able to, in some way, sympathize with the plight that he's in. And to, Toby, you sound like you're unmoved. No, I'm very sympathetic. I mean, I, I think it's out of that kind of position. That I'm not I'm trying to I change just... your mind, Toby, because you know, this is why you're on. <laughs> no, I want to hear honestly. This is like, we, we are way all over the place on this. And I think that's great for the discussion. But that's the thing that I'm actually surprised that you're the one who is uh, un- unmoved by that. No, I'm, t- I'm, I'm completely sympathetic. I just think in the conditions that he was under, I think what, what he's going through is, is horrible. And I think it's the, the sheer, awfulness of that situation is what makes it hard to evaluate like what was he thinking at different times because I don't think he's not thinking the same way that you or I are thinking while we're talking on this podcast like it's 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 coming from a a place I would assume of fear fatigue 
you know, seeing that you have this one opportunity to do something other than being strapped to your bed or whatever it is that was going on at the time. So there's just got to be all these things kind of going on. Plus, you know, I'm sure his mental health is not good, all these things. So then saying, do you think he was sending some kind of signal? Yeah, he may have been and it may have been something that made sense. So I, I, I'm not being unsympathetic to him. I, I, I feel a, a lot of sympathy for, for the plight, but it's you know looking back and trying to make sense of like he was making rational decisions all the time in a situation that just absolutely was not rational. I, I just have a hard time feeling very strongly one way or the other because I, it's just it's impossible for me to envision myself in that situation or even envision myself in a situation where I was trying to look back and make sense of of decisions that I made under such duress. I think that I may surprise you, Kevin. I, I agree with Toby in a way because Bergdahl and Jay were in very different situations in that Jay was being offered a way out, ostensibly. Mm-hmm. If, if he was, if his confession was false, if it was the kind of confession that we're now, I think it's being illustrated in the program we're all watching, Making a Murderer, what you're offered is, if you confess, we will give you this. This, everything will be okay for you. Bergdahl is not being offered anything in exchange for doing these videos. He's not being told, if you do this, we'll set you free, for example. No, but we'll let you live for another day. Right, right. And I just, I don't think, I, I think it's different. I think that Toby's right in that we can't know. I, I think um, the videos are tough to watch. We've actually yeah. posted that video that we talked about on our this, the show page for this episode. So if you go to our website and look for the post for this episode and the video is there. Laura, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, I think the thing that really struck me, the scene that Kevin was talking about, was his word choice and his word order when he was saying, bring me home, please bring me home. It was kind of disjointed, which... Really, I think you you took from that the desperation and just the the sense that he really was in a bad place because he was phrasing things like a desperate person at he that point. He was off script. Yeah, it just wasn't even making it like he was like, bring me, please, home. Like he was just out of order. Did you, did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And maybe yeah. that was a signal to sort of show that he wasn't okay. You know, they, they yeah. were trying to say he was being treated well. They're cleaning him up for these videos. You know, yeah. there's the picture of him smiling with the Hakani that we po- also are going to post on our website, where if you weren't looking for a guy who was being tortured, it would be pretty easy to say, hey, that, that's that guy with his friend, the Hakani. You know, it, 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 it is hard He's sympathizing. to sympathizing. Yeah, it, it sort of backs it up. I'm going to give one nugget to the folks there who are still suspicious of Bergdahl. If you remember in episode one, he said he realized he was out and that he was in trouble and he needed to bring something back and he made the Jason Bourne comment, right? He realized he needed to bring something of value back to minimize the trouble he was in. Well, in his story, and though most of it is backed up by both the Taliban and the military debriefers, he does act like Jason Bourne in this second attempt with the nail and tying a, a rope together and, and you know, his even exploits. Even falling off a cliff. Even falling off a cliff. And then being able to bring back intelligence that Sarah says the American military found to be extremely helpful. Right. He came back with the stuff, you know, they said. So, you, you know, one can draw the conclusion that he knew from the beginning he had to bring something to value back and he he just happened to do that maybe he never stopped thinking that way yeah who knows who knows okay so i would like to uh just ask one final question before we rate the episode sarah teases at the end of this episode um that we're going to focus next on those bigger diplomatic efforts to rescue bergdahl i'm wondering if this might be getting toward something that we've been talking about since the beginning she made that analogy to the zoom book and maybe drawing back and telling a much larger story we disagreed a little bit over what that larger story might be toby do you have any theories or thoughts on where we're going with this zoom analogy next is this diplomatic Diplomatic episode going to be part of that larger story? What, what do you think? Where do you think this is going? Well, I, I think that was my sense from the beginning was that you're, you're kind of looking at this small episode and, and, and you're zooming out to see at, at different levels how it was handled. So, it, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it's about how did, you know, the fact that he was, you know, a prisoner, how did that come into play when they're nego- trying to negotiate you know, troop withdrawals or, or whatever. So I, that's my guess. Laura, what's your theory about where we are with the Zoom analogy right now? 
Okay, I'm getting a little deep here. So I'm going to go back to episode two where we hear from Jason Dempsey and he talks about how the mission in Afghanistan languished longer than it should. And one of the things that I thought I, I when I was doing some reading this week about Bo Bergdahl, he was accepted on a waiver. He shouldn't have been accepted based on his being removed from, I think it was, was it the uh, Marines or was Coast it the Coast Guard? Yeah. yeah, on a psychological waiver. But because they were still in Afghanistan, and because they needed more troops, at the time that Bo signed up, they were taking one in five people on waivers that otherwise would not have been allowed to serve. And I think that's where she's going. Interesting. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I definitely think the next episode is the start of the Zoom. I think these three episodes are prologue. Set up. Set up for where it's going. Look, what I know is that after the success of season one, that the serial team got hit with, I think it was something like 2,500 story pitches. So, you know, you would think that, you know, the story that they decided to go with would have to be really compelling. And, you know, she is sort of promising a bigger story. I don't know if we end up like at the end, you know, in the Oval Office or, you know, how far back it does zoom and we keep calling it the zoom we're just going to call it that forever i think now she's hinted that okay we're ready to leave afghanistan to some and pakistan to some extent and start you know seeing the bigger story whatever the story was that she saw that said yes i want to do this i don't think it was based on the fact that she had 25 hours of tape of bo bergdahl i think there was something more there that's the promise of season two and i think she's starting to get there remember where we were in season one by episode three we we had just gotten to the story of lincoln park right and and, and we really weren't into sort of the weeds on the the car and the uh, you know all the other stuff that made serial season one so compelling so i think the pacing and such is you know we're waiting week to week it seems slow but when you put it together you know i think it probably will be a, a little more compelling laura i think what you said was very interesting. I know that there is a case to be made that Bergdahl wasn't supposed to be there. I know there's also a case to be made that lots and lots of other young men, you know, kind of weren't supposed to be there for a different reason, because there's a lot of, you know, Bergdahl comes from, I think, you know, an untraditional background, but certainly a more comfortable background than a lot of other young soldiers who at that point were, for example, joining because there was a big signing bonus being offered to join. And it was sort of like, you know, the way out of, you know, sort of the way up. It was sort of being seen as a a new way to sort of step up. You know, you can go to college. College really isn't on the table, but the Army is offering $10,000 for you to sign up. And I think there is a larger story there about the people that we sent and whether or not they should have been there. Maybe that really is kind of where this is going. Well, I guess we'll find out. We're going to do now what we do at the end of these episodes. We are going to give this episode of Serial a letter grade. I think that, Toby, you are probably the least suspenseful grader, given how you sort of came out at the start of the episode with your strong feelings about the episode. Give season two, episode three, the escaping a letter grade for us right now and tell us why. Uh, I guess I give it a B minus because, I mean, it was interesting enough, but it just it didn't have the things that I sort of associate with cereal that makes it, you know, such a compelling thing to talk about. What about you, Laura? What's your grade for this episode? I think I'm still going to go with a B plus. Like, I, I, you know, it's even like you said, a bad or, or not a bad episode of cereal, but, you know, a lesser episode of cereal is still pretty good. Um, you know, I tried to listen to Limetown last night and I was asleep in five minutes. So, um <laughs> So, you know, I think that the details of his captivity were really enlightening and they're really going to set us up for what's to come next. All right, Kevin, what letter grade do you give this episode of Serial? I'm going to give it an A minus. I learned something I didn't know before and that drew me in. And uh, I, I was certainly surprised at how affected I felt. And how, again, my perception of Bo Bergdahl changed again at the end of this episode, just like it had at the end of episode two and the end of episode one. So good writing, understated, but powerful. I'm with you. And that's why I'm in the A minus A range as well. When I was listening to this episode, I was pretty riveted and surprised at how suspenseful I found that even though we weren't hearing any gnat sound, we're just hearing straight Sarah talking, bow tape, Sarah talking, bow tape. I found myself really riveted by the story of his POW experience, you know, the children knocking him on the head, his escape attempts, his sort of thinking, hiding things in his bedclothes. I found those details really interesting and, and very listenable. Yeah, nat sound, you mean natural sound or ambient 
Yes, like sound you, from you the field. You just went into radio league. Yes, yeah. yes. Boots on gravel, as people who make fun of public radio call it. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to transition, as we always do, to my favorite part of the episode. This week's Crime of the Week. Big story, the scandal involving a lottery official who allegedly fixed drawings to secretly claim prizes continues to grow. The executive director at the multi-state lottery organization that runs Powerball and Hot Lotto has now stepped down, and lotteries across the country are being asked to examine any chances that accomplices of this guy, Eddie Tipton, claimed jackpots in their states. Tipton, the guy who rigged the lottery, allegedly, was a former security director for the multi-state lottery. He was convicted this summer for a scheme in which he installed undetectable software in random number generators. The program would self-destruct, and then Tipton would play the numbers and claim the jackpot. He got caught on surveillance video personally trying to turn in a winning lottery ticket at a retailer near lottery headquarters in Iowa. But since his conviction, officials have learned that Tipton and his friends pulled the scheme in at least four states over six years. So is your trust in the lottery shaken? I'd love your thoughts on this, especially you, Kevin, as you just recently published a book, American Sweepstakes, <sighs> about the lottery. Is it rigged? Okay, 30 seconds or less, Kevin. Keep yeah, it tight. Thank, thanks for screwing my book. What are your thoughts? Lottery official. <laughs> um, look, that, that's always sort of been the appeal of the establishing a state lottery is that you're pushing the mob out and that you're supposed to have faith that the games are not fixed. That's what Racketeers did. They knew in the numbers games what numbers were the fancy numbers. And it's great. They would pull, you know, the ball out of the pit. But if they knew like, oh, eight's a big number today, they would do things like market or they would put it in a freezer so you don't pull those numbers. The idea was that the games are not fixed and that you every player has a fair shot. And uh, this is in the past 50 years, Certainly, the biggest, probably one of the, you know, only substantial scandals to hit state lotteries. This is you're, you're talking about a security official who really got in and rigged the system and tried to claim sixteen million dollars. That's big, Laura. What do and you think? And it ruins the the epilogue of my book. God damn it, <laughs> Laura. What what do you think of this idea that the lottery could be rigged? Are you a big lottery player? What are your thoughts? I am not. You know, my husband used to buy the Powerball ticket once a week. They um had the custodian at the fire station where he worked. He's kind of like the bookie who would uh, go out and buy all the tickets for them. So that's really our only experience with the lottery. Um, I guess I'm not surprised uh, that this has happened because it seems like if you are somebody that is involved with this, the temptation at some point is going to be great enough to rig it. It also reminds me of a a local sweepstakes we have here in our town um, run by a local organization. And it was somewhat um, odd. Every year, somebody on the board of directors always ended up winning the $10,000 prize. And I Mm. thought that was rigged, but never able to expose that. You need (laughs) to get your PI glasses on and take a closer look at that one, I think. That would be pretty juicy. There was something up. What do you think, Toby, about this story that the lottery could potentially be rigged and that this guy has maybe part of a much, much bigger story around the institution of state lotteries in the United States? It's surprising to me that any form of gambling could be rigged, given history. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i you know i don't know i I don't play the lottery i actually bought my first uh scratch ticket the other night because we we went to a party and it was supposed to be a yankee swap and Mm -hmm. we completely spaced it and the only place that i had time to go to was this little like privately run convenience store that was across the street and so i got a a a bottle of mad dog 2020 (laughs) Uh, electric melon flavor and two scratch tickets. And then I didn't have enough money for any cigarettes, but I put them in a brown paper bag and wrote a gift of hope on it. And uh, it was actually having a college flashback. And and it was very popular. It got many people traded around, I think, because they wanted the scratch tickets. Uh, The three wise men came bearing lottery tickets, cigarettes. And yeah, they did want the scratch tickets. Let me tell you, you guys can judge all you want. I do love me a good scratch ticket, and Kevin can attest to the fact that I believe when I start scratching that I'm going to win every single time. And if I find out that the scratch tickets are rigged, it will be for me a deeply personal scandal. (laughs) And that's all I have to say about that. We are going to end it on that note. Toby Ball, how can our listeners find you on Twitter? Uh, I'm at Toby Ball. NH. And, well, and I'd also like to say thank you to the Charlotte Public Library in Charlotte, Vermont for 
letting me record at their place today. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you, Charlotte Public Library. Listeners, go to the Charlotte Public Library's Facebook page and give them a note of thanks. Toby Ball, NH, thanks for joining us with your always interesting take on things. (laughs) Thank you. And Laura Bricker, how can people find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker, and it's L-A-R-A. Thank you so much for joining us, Laura, from way over there in the most, what sounds like the most quaint town in New Hampshire. It really is a little Puritan village. (laughs) And Kevin, how can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Kevin P. Flynn. And Kevin, thank you so much for coming in today and joining me for this conversation. Thanks, Rebecca. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and Happy Anniversary, babe. I love you. I love you, too. Oh, that's right. Our anniversary is coming up. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Oh, mother of God. Guys, it's a tough memory. I try to bury it deep. <sighs> you can also find our show on Twitter at Crime Writers On and on Facebook. Just search for Crime Writers On Serial. You can also send an email with your questions and comments to crimewriterson at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Reb Lavoy. Our theme music was performed by Rocksteady Freddy and the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. You can find out more about all of us at our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, do some shopping with our Amazon link. Make a donation via PayPal. You can check out our brand new Buy Our Books page. You can check out our blog, all the ways you can support and listen to this podcast. On behalf of all of the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. Thank you for your reviews on iTunes and keep them coming. We will catch you later. Well, everyone's level tested except for you. My, okay, well, let me get on mic. How's this? What was your favorite Christmas gift that you got this year? It might have been the uh, the waffle iron that does waffles in the shape of the Death Star. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, it's true, yeah. That's awesome. Kevin made, uh-huh. a, Kevin made a confession to his family last week. Would you like to make it again on this podcast? Uh, yeah. Uh, I saw Star Wars three times in six days. Wow. Including yeah. before he saw it with his family, which he pretended was the first time <laughs> he was seeing it. Really? Well, I just, I didn't lie. Nobody asked me. Is this the first time you've seen this? <laughs> it's only been out for a day and a half. Wow. So would you go to the matinee or something by yourself? Yeah, yeah. And it was like wow. empty. Can I tell them what my 13-year-old son said about you? Yeah. He said that uh, Kevin, his stepdad, who he loves, it's yeah. like it's like what it would be like if a child could drive a car. <laughs> It's a very perceptive young man. <laughs> wow.